We'll hear argument now in number 97569, Burlington Industries versus uh, Kimberly Eller. Mr. Casey. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Is an employer strictly or automatically liable for job-related threats made in conjunction with sexual advances when the employee has suffered no tangible job detriment for the rejection of those advances? In other words, the unfulfilled threat. We submit that the answer to that question is no. Strict or automatic liability should not be applied in a situation of unfulfilled threats, but rather should be analyzed... Mr. Casey, yes. uh, sounds to me like you're asking question two of the questions presented on petition for certiorari, which is whether strict liability is the proper standard. Now, I thought the court didn't grant certiorari on question two. I thought we granted certiorari on question one. That is correct. Most of your brief addresses question two. I mean, I, are we going to talk about question one on which cert was granted? Justice, the, 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 the question, question one is, the un, is whether or not the strict liability standard ought to apply in the unfulfilled threat situation where, where there is no adverse job consequence. Well, I, it doesn't address strict liability, actually. It says whether a claim of quid pro quo sexual harassment may be stated under Title VII when the plaintiff has neither submitted to the sexual advances nor suffered any tangible effects. That's the question. Yes, Justice. Under it, it just doesn't refer to strict liability. Under, under the assumption, Justice, that, in, that most courts have, who have addressed the issue have addressed quid pro quo as a strict liability issue. Uh, and that's why I referred to the strict liability. Uh, for the unfulfilled threat, and, and that's why I believe it is, it is cognizable under question one, which is the question that the court did accept. You are quite correct about that. But m almost all of the courts who have addressed quid pro quo sexual harassment have addressed it under the theory of strict liability for the employer, where there has been an adverse job action such as a termination of employment, a demotion, a transfer to a less fulfilling job, uh, a loss of benefits. Uh, these are all tangible job detriments where the company has acted through, through a supervisor. Well, there, there's really no other reason to have the quid pro quo category, is there? Absolutely not. Your Except point. to establish a, a different standard of liability. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and, the statute and, doesn't, doesn't establish different kinds of sexual harassment quid pro quo and, and environmental harassment. No, it does not. not it, in the statute, it, is it? It does not, Your Honor. But the courts who, who have addressed the other violations of Title VII, for example, in race cases, have attached strict liability to the employer when the, the supervisor has taken an adverse job action, such as a termination of someone because of their race, a refusal to hire someone because of their race, a termination of someone because of their natural... Uh, their, their natural origins uh, because of their religion. Uh, courts have viewed that as employer strict liability. On the other hand, when, when in a race case, for example, a, a person is living in, an, in, in a hostile racial work environment or a hostile environment to one's religion or a hostile environment because one happens to be Korean or Indian or, or, or English, uh, that has been viewed as whether or not the company has been negligent in permitting that hostile work environment to exist. When you say that has been viewed, you mean by some courts, and other courts say 
Well, first of all, you don't, you don't challenge that the claim here falls within Title VII. You're just um, asserting that there is a different um, standard for oh, the employer. Oh, absolutely, Your Honor. So everybody agrees that this kind of claim is stated under Title VII. This is a, this is a claim for discrimination by reason of one's gender. And, and then how did we come to this uh, distinction then? Because the statute doesn't say a word about quid pro quo, and it doesn't say a word about hostile environment. It says same terms and conditions of employment, period. It, it, it does indeed. Uh, this court in Meritor uh, acknowledged at least a distinction between the hostile work environment and quid pro quo. Uh, this court, in the Harris forklift opinion, uh, by noting that the Harris case was not a quid pro quo case, implicitly recognized the distinction. Uh, I think the same distinction, Your Honor, has been made in the other in, in the other type violations of Title VII, uh, in terms of, of of race and national origin, where there has been an act. Do we have a race or national origin case where there's a negligence? Uh, as opposed to vicarious liability? Not from this court. There, have been, there are many circuits who have, who have recognized that, that the hostile environment, the racially hostile environment, is, is a negligence issue, and, and the standard the company or the employer is held to is whether the, whether the employer knew or should have known of the, of the racially hostile environment. And, and the same distinction is, is what we are urging the court to adapt in the sex harassment case. So suppose a, a supervisor, uh, let's use the race as an example. Suppose a supervisor says, I'm not going to promote you because you're Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Um, and a week later, does promote the person. And the person's no longer even working for that supervisor, promoted out of the department. Is there a violation there? Uh, in that one instance, I would say there is not. Th there is? There is not. A violation. Uh, if if there was repeated, repeated and and repeatedly hostile comments made by the supervisor to the employee because of his natural, I think there then would be a violation. But here, do you analogize what happened here to the hypothetical that I, I gave you? I do. I do exactly. Uh, there here, there was an implicit threat. I could make your job easier or harder for you. That was that's the kind of threat we talked about. And it was at, at a job promotion instance. And in this case... Well, suppose in the case that I, that I put the promotion, uh, the case where I put it was that she was promoted next week. Yes. Uh, suppose in the race hypothetical, uh, the promotion isn't going to come up for a year. But the uh, supervisor has said that. Uh, could the employee bring a cause of action? An injunction? Or is there just no... Just kind of, a violation in the air with no damage. I think I think there is no harm. I think there there is no harm. Uh, uh, despite, although, despite the insult and the personal hurt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think, Your Honor, that one insult uh, is sufficiently severe to rise to a to a hostile environment. What if you have a situation of a supervisor for a large corporate employer who routinely orders a female employee under his supervision to go to a certain uh, isolated place where the supervisor can be alone with this employee and repeatedly then uh, tries to use that opportunity for sexual gratification, repeatedly. Uh, 
uh, no, no change in promotion status or discharge. Uh, is, is there vicarious liability there uh, for the employer or only if the employer is, as you put it, negligent? Your Honor, in, in the example you just gave, I believe that there, there is very likely a quid pro quo. She has been ordered no, off... No, no. I, I left that out of the assumption. All right. The assumption is that, that she's ordered to an isolated... That the supervisor uses his supervisor, supervisory authority to place the employee in, in this situation where he can then take advantage of her. Okay. And does so repeatedly. Okay. He has acted. He has, he has used the authority vested in him by, by his employer. He has then acted as, on behalf of the employer, and I believe there may well but then the be... The employer is not negligent. The employer tells all their supervisors to be careful. Don't do this. By, by issuing orders to isolate an employee, I believe he is using the authority vested in, 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 vested in him by the, by the employer. All right, then why not in, in one instance alone? Let's, let's take Justice O'Connor's example, but change it in this respect. Let's assume the supervisor uh, orders the, the employee into his office. And instead of being subtle about it, or comparatively so, he is very explicit about it. He said, you are going nowhere with this company. You are not going to get your promotion 12 months hence, unless in the meantime you grant sexual favors to me. Isn't that sufficient to create at least a hostile environment? No, Your Honor. Why not? Because it is, What could it, be more hostile than that? Because he, he, has, he has won... In, in terms of the hostile environment, Your Honor, the, the, the courts have routinely, uh, the circuit courts of appeal have routinely held that a single incident... Oh, quite, but, but the, the point of the single incident cases, as I understand them, is that there's a certain amount of, of necessary uh, uh, rough give and take in life. And the fact that there may be one or two employees in a company who occasionally make a remark, the one incident case, to be literal about it, uh, does not suffice uh, to modify the entire environment to the point where a discrimination can be inferred. But when one is talking about a supervisor with the undoubted authority, uh, in effect, to, to change the entire future of a given employee in that company, and that supervisor is explicit about it, nothing is left to chance, uh, it seems to me that the, 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 the very power of the employer and the explicitness of what he does in, in this hypothetical uh, should, should be enough, whereas one remark from a fellow employee wouldn't be enough. For liability, <coughs> Your Honor, for liability for an employer to attach in a hostile work environment, there has to be some, some indication to the employer that he knew, the employer knew or should have known. But why, it, why not? Why, if, if in a series of cases the employer is going to be liable because the supervisor has been authorized, has been given a particular power and repeatedly abuses it uh, so that the abuse is clear. Why shouldn't the employer, by a parity of reasoning, be liable when the abuse is equally clear when it is made very explicitly clear in, in one instance? Because, Your Honor, in, in, the, in the example or the hypothetical that Your Honor posits, uh, the employer a supervisor has done nothing but speak words. He has not actually... Oh, but he's done nothing in Justice O'Connor's hypo except speak words, except that he has done so somewhat less explicitly than he does in my case, so it may take a while to make it very clear that he means what he says. But in, in, in my case, the, the same inference can be drawn 
uh, after the first instance. On the contrary, Your Honor, in the Justice O'Connor's hypothetical, as I understood it, <clears throat> the, the supervisor repeatedly ordered the employee off to an isolated place where, where he could then take advantage of the employee. And, and it's the acting... But she resisted. She resisted every time. It was awful for her, but she resisted. What, where do you put that case? I assume that if she succumbs in order to get the promotion, then you would say we don't have to prove negligence. Is that correct? Your Honor, in a, in a, in a submission case, I would, I would argue that in a submission case, that if the employee reasonably believed that submission was a term and condition of employment, I believe then there would be strict liability. If she reasonably, okay, why she isn't, reasonably, she reasonably believes that it's going to be very hard to put up resistance, but she's going to do it. She reasonably believes that she's going to resist this, and she does. And the, in those two cases, as far as the employer is concerned, there's no more likelihood that the employer will know about one situation than the other, is there? But you told me that if she succumbs, then there's liability. And I, if she doesn't, then what? In, if, if I can modify my, not modify my answer, but if I can clarify my answer on, on the submission. Uh, I do not believe in a case such as we have here, where there is a clear policy against sexual harassment, where there are avenues of redress which, which, in which you can avoid the complaint, the complaining through the offending supervisor, as is the case here, where that no employee then could reasonably believe. Well, that's that, all, that would all be for a trial if there were a trial. But this, that's, this, this was decided on summary, summary judgment. So yes, we don't sir. know anything about what employees... We know that there was a policy. We don't know anything about how effective it was, how other employees reacted to it. So all we know at this stage of the game is that there was a policy. We, we, know, we know something in addition to that, Your Honor. We know, one, there was a policy. We know, two, in... in in following this court's guidance in Meritor, that there were avenues of redress in which one could avoid the, the, the offending supervisor. And three, we know that, that the respondent in this case was aware of the policy, understood the policy, and intentionally, intentionally did not follow the policy, and in fact stated the reason she we, didn't tell... We know, we know two things, that there was a policy and she didn't use it. We don't know any, anything about why. It may be that she thought it would, was a totally ineffective policy. But we really can't go beyond the summary judgment record, and we don't know any of these things and other than the, the fact that there was a policy and the fact that she didn't use it. Your, Your Honor, and, I, and I'm not going beyond the summary judgment record. What she, what she testified to, and it, and it is part of the summary judgment record, what she testified to is that she intentionally did not report it to her supervisor because, and I quote, it would be his duty to report it. And we do know that. And we do. Where is that? What are we referring to? What testimony? That's uh, in the record, Your Honor, at uh, I will find it, Your Honor, but it is, in, it is, it is clearly in the record and it's quoted directly in our brief. Uh, what, uh, what is the relationship between your reasonably believed standards and the standard either of employer negligence or, for that matter, employer strict liability. I, I, uh, well, you, I, I, I understood you to say a moment ago, in, re, in response to Justice Ginsburg's variant on the question, that 
if the employee reasonably believed uh, that he could carry out, that the employer could carry out threats, even though those threats had not at that point been carried out, uh, that there would be a hostile environment. And I, I was going to say, what is the relationship between that standard and the standard of employer negligence? Your Honor, I, I <clears throat> perhaps I misspoke. Uh, what I said was, if what I meant was, if an employee reasonably believed that it, that submission was a term and condition of employment, and she did submit, and the belief was reasonable, then I believe there, is, there would be a, a, an adverse tangible job consequence. But, but if she reasonably believed it and did not submit, even on a claim of hostile work environment, there would be no liability, period. There could be no liability. Is that your position? In the hostile work environment, unless there, there is some evidence that the employer knew or should have known. May I ask a question on that point? Supposing in the Chicago office you had conditions that clearly amounted to a hostile work environment, much, much worse facts than you have here. Everybody's being very, very rude to the female employees. And the only person outside of that office who knows about it is the vice president in charge of sales in New York, this particular individual. Would that be noticed to the company of the hostile work environment? Your Honor, I think in, this, in, the, in the situation you described, yeah. there would be... There would be the standard of the company should have known, if it is as open and notorious open as you're under Chicago, And the only higher executive who knows about it is this particular individual, Mr. Slowick. Would that be sufficient notice to the company? And he was responsible for this office? Well, he had exactly the duties he has in this case. He's the vice president in charge of the sales in a large part of the country. I, believe, I believe, Your Honor, if he was aware of open, and, of open and notorious conduct of, of a hostile environment for female employees, it would be noticed to the company, I think so. But then why isn't it noticed to the company when he does it himself? Because, Your Honor, he did not fulfill the threat. He, he simply implied a threat, never carried it out. She, in fact, got promoted. What if he told the president about, about the case, the president of the company? Would, would she then have, have a case? He it, told the, the president everything that she's put in the record here. I'm missing the point. The, 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 the question, part of the question is, A, is there a violation, and B, if so, is the company responsible for it? And I'm trying to assume that, that what he said would be a violation. Maybe that's where we're, we part company. I don't know. But if the things that happened here were not only known by Mr. Slowick, but by the board of directors of the company, would there be liability? I do not believe so. I do not believe this is a hostile... So, so it isn't a question of whether we hold the company responsible. The question, for, in your view, is whether there was a violation at all. Well, if there's no liability, there's no, there's no violation. Right. I thought you said earlier that, they, that, in your view, the acts were not repeated enough to constitute a hostile work environment. Was I wrong about that? No, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and I so that's that, the reason and I don't, there were notices. And I, I don't think it rises to a yeah. hostile work can, environment. Can I ask you something about Justice O'Connor's uh, hypothetical? Yes, uh, you, you said that we're where the company officer takes the woman aside to an isolated uh, place where he can make his sexual advances, that that would, that would be uh, automatic liability on the part of the employer? That, that would be a quid pro quo case? Is what, that why they, why they, because he's using his power as an officer to take her aside to the... Uh, to order her to, to isolated parts of the... Of the, of the what would you call that? Would you call that quid pro quo? I would, in, in that circumstance, Your Honor, I would say that is quid pro quo because... Because he is exercising the, I, 
Precisely. The what authority tells her to come over to the water court? Boy, I mean, boy, you, you expanded quid pro quo an enormous amount if you uh, accept that. What if he tells her, you know, come on over to the water cooler, I want to tell you something. And she goes over to the water cooler. I, I, I don't... I, I'm making the distinction, Your Honor. I interpreted Justice O'Connor's... I had thought the quid pro quo was just those, uh, those company actions which in themselves amount to an alteration of the terms and conditions of employment, like firing, promotion, and so forth. I think... Con- but you're willing to say quid pro quo is, is what? Any, uh, any action that, uh, that, that an officer of the company has authority to uh, tell somebody to do? No, I think, Your, I think, Your Honor, that isolation and constant isolation on orders of a supervisor is, it is an adverse, tangible job consequence. Well, it isn't constant isolation, as I understood her hypothetical. He just took her aside to an isolated place to make his proposition. I mean, if he assigned her to, a, you know, to Timbuktu or something, yeah, that, 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 Justice, then I could see quid pro quo. Justice but he just pulled her aside to make his proposition. Justice O'Connor's question was repeatedly repeatedly ordered her to an isolated part of the factory. Oh, I see. So she's working. Uh, you, you understood her question to mean that she's working in an isolated part of the That's factory correct. all by herself That's there. That's correct. Oh. That's how I, exactly how I interpreted it. Just in case well, that wasn't the question, but uh, <laughs> offering it to suit your needs now. <laughs> Mr. Casey, would you explain this to me? In the, I take it it's common ground here with you and everybody else that in a hostile environment claim, there does not have to be any change in conditions beyond those conditions which uh, are constituted by the hostility of the environment. That is correct. Okay. Now... Environmental hostility. Right. Right. If the environmental hostility is created by threats of personnel action, threats of a quid pro quo nature, in other words, which are not carried out, why isn't the hostility of the environment just as clear, even though there are no other changes in conditions, as, as may be the case in a non-unfulfilled quid pro quo hostile environment case? It, Justice Souter, it may well be a hostile environment. And if it is a hostile environment, then, then we look at it as a, as a, a standard of negligence. Did the employer know or should no, the employer know? No, but I'm leaving know? aside, the, and maybe, maybe I'm isolating the question too much uh, for, 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 uh, for your taste, but I'm, I'm suggesting for a minute, let's leave aside the standard for imputing liability to the employer. Let's just look at whether there's been a violation uh, and, and forget whether it's negligence or whether it's strict liability for the moment. Uh, and I take it your answer is, yes, there can be a hostile environment by unfulfilled quid pro quo kinds of threats. That's correct. And your, your only point of difference then, I guess, uh, with your opponents on that isolated point is that you say there's got to be more than one threat, just as there has got to be more than one uh, hostile remark, if you will, in order to create the environment. One, one instance. One instance does okay. not create a hostile well, environment. And you're saying that the fact that the uh, hostile environment and the unfulfilled quid pro quo situation is created by a supervisor with more authority than, let's say, just a fellow employee, that doesn't make any difference in the calculus of how many instances there have got to be before we can conclude that the environment has, in fact, become hostile. You're saying that really is not relevant. I, I, don't, I do not believe that to be relevant. Okay. Mr. Casey, uh, you, you formulate this question, uh, claim of quid pro quo sexual harassment. Now, 
what, what is your understanding of the term quid pro quo sexual harassment? My understanding, Your Honor, is, is this for that. Uh, you give me something and I will do something either negatively or positively to you. There's a quid and a quo. And, and I believe... Simply where it's proposed or where it happens? Where it happens. Where it happens. Correct. You mean... Where it happens. Where, where, where something is proposed by, 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 the, by the supervisor, but not necessarily uh, acquiesced in by the employee, I take it. Sleep with me or I won't promote you. I yeah. mean, it is the classic example that we all use. Yeah, but... And, and, uh, <laughs> and I don't promote you. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it, it, it's curious because you say that where, where the woman says, okay, I will sleep with you, and he does promote her so that there is a, a quid and there is a quo for the quid, that is not quid pro quo. But where she refuses, she does not give the quid, and therefore does not get the quo, that is quid pro quo. Your Honor, if, if he gets... It's, it's an interesting theory. No, no it's, 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 that's, but that's not precisely the theory. The, the theory is, if, if she gets the promotion for having slept with him, she, she got something she's not otherwise entitled to, and I think that is, that is discrimination, and I think that is a violation if she actually didn't get the promotion. Wait, wait, it isn't the case where it is. In the case where it is the violation, he makes the proposition, it's refused, and she is not promoted, and the person who did it is the vice president of the company. Why doesn't the company know about it? He knows about it. He's the vice president. He is the company. So why isn't the company the actor? Because he, 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 excuse me, I didn't interrupt you. Because he didn't act with the authority given him by the employer. And so then you're just using the same arguments that were in this other case. There's nothing it new. It puzzles here. me that if, is that it, right? if she does acquiesce, the law gives her a remedy. If she doesn't, it doesn't give her a remedy. So the no, law I, favors I submission, as I understand. I, I, I don't think I don't think that's actually the case, Your Honor. Uh, I don't think it favors submission in in, in any event. Uh, I don't think there's... He's bluffing in both cases. In both cases if he's bluffing. bluffing in both cases and she had no reasonable belief, I think there's no violation. In your, I, view, there, in your view, this is what I was trying to get at. There is nothing in this case in respect to authority, apparent authority, agency, all the things that we discussed in previous cases that were recently argued. In that area, there is nothing different here. The only thing that is different in this case is whether or not the quid pro quo is, in fact, substantively... In irrespective, face, is that right? In face of a clear policy mm. in the company, she could not reasonably believe that he had the authority to do it. There is no but apparent I, authority. I that you, I, I'm trying to figure out, is there anything in the question that we are being asked to decide that is different from the question in the two cases that were recently argued here? Absolutely. And, and there is one thing that seemed different. We're asked, which is what I thought the question meant, whether there is a substantive violation of the statute. Nothing to do with vicarious liability. Now, other than that, is there anything different? Yes, Your Honor. The difference, the difference in this case is the standard of liability to be applied. Is it strict liability or is it a negligence issue? So if I believe it's strict liability, there's nothing different. If I, other than the standard of liability. But that's, that, that's what we didn't grant certiorari on. That's the second question. Your Honor... I'm tying the strict liability to the quid pro quo. If it is a quid pro quo case, this for that, I believe the, the cases are, are quite uniform that there is strict liability. And in Casey, how did all this come up? It, it really is mystifying with a statute that doesn't use any of these terms. It just says, no, that shall not discriminate in hiring, firing, all terms and conditions of employment. Justice, it came up in the context, really, of the other violations 
of Title VII in the race cases, for example. The company is automatically liable if, if the person is fired or demoted or not promoted because of his race. Why, why should and that be? Why, why should that be? Why should there be a distinction between quid pro quo and hostile work environment? What is the law trying to achieve by adopting that category, by adopting that dichotomy? Well, this court has, has instructed us in Meritor that we should look to agency principles. And, and when one is acting on behalf of the employer and using his authority, that is, in effect, the employer acting. When, when there is simply a hostile environment, there, the standard on, on, for agency should be known or should have known. Thank you, Mr. Casey. Mr. Rossiello, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The express language of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 specifies that three elements, and three elements only, must be demonstrated to establish a violation of that statute. There must first be employer action, secondly, posited upon a discriminatory basis, and third, the discriminatory conduct must alter the terms and conditions of employment. The only issue for this court to decide is whether or not Mr. Slowick's conduct in this case was employer action within the meaning of 42 U.S.C. 2002-A1. Mr. Why Hoffman, is quid, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'd, I'd like to ask you, in, in a situation like this where we take it that the supervisor doesn't follow through on any threat, actual or implied, of uh, failure to promote or something, some employment action, where the employer does not follow through on that. <coughs> uh, the harm to the employee uh, seems to be very much the same as that under hostile environment claims. That's correct. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of difference well, uh, here than uh, there would be to simply a hostile environment situation where, where the threat is not, is not carried out. The harm could or might be the same. For purposes of, damage, for purposes of damages or the harm inflicted, it could be the same for hostile uh, work environment. I, I just don't see much difference now. And in that regard, what role does the existence of an employer policy and method for handling complaints of this type play? Does it go to the reasonableness of the employee's belief, or does it go to the amount of damages if there's liability? What role does that play? It goes to the amount of damages. Uh, the existence of a policy has little or no effect on the liability issue. Uh, in this particular case, the policy we're talking about is a single flimsy sentence buried amid two very brief paragraphs. Well, let's suppose it's a fabulous policy and very effective. If now, we can what find role does it play? <laughs> Excuse me? What role should it play if it's a perfect policy? Little to none on the liability issue because the express language of Title VII uh, does not require that the plaintiff follow uh, a policy or oh, complain to the employer it go or it to goes the to the reasonableness the of the employee's uh, understanding when some comment is made? I mean, if she knows perfectly well, look, this company has a, a good policy, and if I say something 
higher up the ladder it's going to be taken care of. Then is it reasonable to, for her to believe that there's some serious threat out there? The short answer to that is yes. Uh, the uh, existence of a policy does affect the reasonableness of the plaintiff's conduct. Most often that would be in a hostile work environment type case. In a quid pro quo type case... But we've already explored the possibility that this is very much like hostile environment if the threat isn't carried out. You're, you're back to hostile environment. Well, it's sort of a hybrid. Uh, in some cases, you know, a hybrid of what? Well, some cases... Uh, if you look at Judge uh, Wood's opinion, the first one that was vacated in the Seventh Circuit, uh, she uh, seems to believe that um, quid pro quo sexual harassment also is a hostile work environment. Well, what's wrong with that belief? Nothing. I think it's... No, not, nothing at all. It's fine. Can I follow up on that? Sure. You, 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 you agree that where, where either she complies and, and the job action, threatened job action, isn't taken, or she doesn't comply and the job action still isn't taken, it's like hostile work environment. Isn't it also true that where she doesn't comply and the job action is taken, she's not given the promotion or she's fired, is anything added to the Title VII analysis by saying it was quid pro quo? That is to say, suppose the, the, the officer of the company, without making a quid pro quo proposition, you know, it didn't say, you know, unless you sleep with me, you won't get the promotion, but simply asked the woman to sleep with him. She didn't, and he fired her for that reason. Without having made any quid pro quo proposal, would, would, the, would the case come out any differently? If that could be established, then it would if he had made the proposal. In other words, isn't the, isn't the proposal simply evidence of the fact that the reason she was fired or the reason she didn't get the promotion was sexual uh, discrimination? Yes. Okay. Because, right, the, uh, if the threat is discriminatory in nature and if it... You don't even need a threat. I mean, if, if, if you don't it need just, much. just makes That's a sexual advancement, she doesn't comply, she is fired thereafter, and if you can show that the reason for the firing was that she was not compliant, you, you, you've established a case, haven't you? Yes, you Whether have. Whether there's been the threat or not. The threat only serves as evidence of the reason for the uh, job action. Yes. Okay, but in a, in a situation in, in which the threat is not carried out, then I take it quid pro quo, the, the quid pro quo distinction makes a difference in this sense, and tell me whether you think I'm right. As I understand the way we've been using the term, a quid pro quo threat is by definition a threat that only a supervisor can make because only the supervisor has got the power to do whatever is threatened. Right. I suppose that a supervisor's threat, simply because it is that of a supervisor, may have more force, may be more powerful in creating a hostile work environment, even if it's only made once, than would one off-color remark or one proposition by a fellow employee without such power. Do you agree that in the unfulfilled quid pro quo situation, there might be that difference, which there is essentially an evidentiary difference? There, there is. It's a question of proof, right? Okay. We're only on summary judgment here. The district court has... With respect to that, if you've got a supervisor who just loves to... never, never makes a kind of a thing, if you don't, uh, then I will, but just likes to make the atmosphere... Uh, fun for the guys and dreadful for the for the women. Doesn't ask for any favors. It's just, it's just all these remarks, uh, light touching, just makes it 
Do you remember way back in the beginning of the world, there was a case called Bundy, and there were secretaries who said, we don't want a promotion, and nobody's threatening to fire us, but this is awful to live under these conditions. So court, don't give us money. Just tell them to stop. Now, where did that kind of case fit in this picture? Well, that is uh, discriminatory conduct within the meaning of Title VII. As both, uh, both cases, Harris and Meredith stated, when the uh, work environment is permeated with intimidation... Uh, but nobody ever suggested in those days that there was something different between quid pro quo and hostile environment and, and vicarious liability on the one hand versus new or should have known on the other. It seemed to be all one... It was under Title VII and there was one standard. Well, we believe there should be one standard. I mean, uh, with all due respect, I think Meredith is a wonderful opinion, but I don't think the court or the author of the opinion intended to wreak the havoc that it did when it uh, used those words, quid pro quo and hostile work environment, in that opinion. The circuit courts of appeals and the district courts have had a field day with those two expressions. Well, let me ask you this. Suppose it were a given. Suppose we would hold that in a hostile work environment case, there's liability only if the employer is negligent. Suppose that were our holding. Um, would the quid pro quo distinction then be important to you? <laughs> yes, it would be. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, I noticed that in, in answering Justice O'Connor's question, you said, but in a quid pro quo case. And now, you, see, so you attack this distinction and, and yet you use it. Well, it's so hard At to... At least you want to hold it in reserve. You see, it's so hard to avoid it. There's just such a large body of case law throwing these two terms around. I and mean, we didn't start it, Mr. Rossiello, lest, uh, lest silence uh, indicate consent. Uh, <laughs> when, when, when we used the, the expression in, in Meritor, we were referring to by what was by then a well-established body of, uh, of Court of Appeals law. I mean, don't, don't, well, don't put it on us. We were just... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I promise not to. Uh, I don't see why it's a problem. Why, why is it a problem but for... The, the circumstance that you have here where there is a proposition that is refused and no punishment. Uh, in, in any other situation, isn't it perfectly useful or is it? Well, it is. It is instructive. Instructive? It, it, I mean, where doesn't it happen? Propositions every yes. day of the week and they uh, sometimes are followed by punishment and they're also sometimes accepted and followed by the lack thereof. In many cases, yes. Right, so, so there is actually, but if there is, if, if to go back to our case, uh, where, where there's a proposition turned down and no punishment, if it were true in that subset, in that subset of quid pro quo, that it is not a violation unless it is a hostile work environment, which depends upon circumstance and a lot more than just the bare facts I stated. How can you win? Because what I'm interested in your answering is in the opinions below, I have some kind of impression that you either waived that or they said that that isn't in the case or uh, what, what, can you explain to me what I'm, what, it may be a hostile work environment, but it requires further factual exploration and the, there is a Seventh Circuit opinion that suggests this whole matter was waived or something. Could you respond uh, to my, what I'm... Uh, yes, I, yes, I can. And that inquiry of Your Honor is treated at great length in our cross-petition for certiorari. Uh, by the time the Seventh Circuit got through its 203-page decision below, uh, I think that hostile work environment claim got lost in the shuffle. We think there's enough in the record that we, it hasn't been waived. And if the court... What are we supposed to do if, if, or what am I supposed to do if I thought that might still be there in light of what the Seventh Circuit did hold 
not what they should have hold and held. And, and in light of the fact that your cross petition, I take it, is not before us. No. All right. So what, are, what would I do in this case if I, on the assumption, I'm not saying I really think that, but on the assumptions that I gave you? Well, I would uh, remand this case for reconsideration. <laughs> he, he should regret that thing. we did not accept your cross petition, I suppose. <laughs> well, what, what, we didn't accept it. I mean, and, well, it's still pending. And it's still, Mr. Rossiello, as I understood what, what happened, was that you didn't surrender a hostile environment case, but you did surrender a simple negligence. So in other words, what you said is hostile environment, quid pro, whatever you want to call it, there's vicarious liability here. So I think what the majority of the Seventh Circuit judges said you gave up was hostile environment, simple negligence, not that you gave up hostile environment and the standard is vicarious liability. Is that Yes, correct? I believe that's a, an accurate characterization. So that in the next round of this, let's assume you win this round. In the next round, if it is determined uh, that, in fact, when a supervisor is involved, uh, and the action involves uh, a, a threat of using the authority that the supervisor has been given by the company. Negligence is not required. Uh, a stricter standard of vicarious liability applies. Then you're home free. Yes. Uh, just as Justice Breyer said a few minutes ago, you know, when this, this type of conduct is engaged in by a vice president, uh, he is the company, and the company is him. Right, but the, the point that I was making is the only thing that you have conceded out is company liability uh, on a negligence theory. For sure. Yeah, okay. If there are no more questions. No, I, I, don't, I just don't understand your response about his using authority that the company's given him. The company hasn't given him authority to, to uh, uh, make a sexual proposition to any of the employees, has it? That's true. They've and I assume the company also hasn't given him authority to fire a woman for her failure to comply with his sexual proposition. No, absolutely not. That's why uh, the cases in our brief, which are other types of uh, Title VII cases, uh, where, I mean, where firing or discharge or a demotion or a, pay, a paid differential is... Where it occurs. You can say uh, the employer has acted. I don't care whether this officer was involved or not. The employer has acted where the firing has occurred. But where the firing hasn't occurred, where there's been no employer action, I, I, find, it, I find it much more difficult to leap to re employer responsibility on a theory that the supervisor was using authority employment uh, the employer gave him. The, the employer didn't give him any authority to fire somebody for failure to comply with his sexual advances. Well, there's where you, we, we get into the hair splitting. That's very true. The employer did not give the authority to sexually harass. No employer does that as far as I know. In fact, in the face of an explicit policy against sexual harassment, this type of conduct still occurs. But where a supervisor, like in this case, Mr. Slowick, you, I'm all, should I just finish? Uh, you can finish your answer I, briefly to I, Justice Scalia. But where a supervisor uses the authority delegated in him in general to accomplish the sexual harassment, Title VII has been violated. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Rossiello. Ms. Underwood, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When a supervisor tells an employee she has to provide sexual favors in order to get a promotion, he is, at that moment, imposing a term or condition on her employment because of her sex in violation of Title VII. That's true whether she complies or refuses, 
And if she refuses, whether she's punished immediately or has to suffer anxiety about the result. No matter how she responds, the supervisor has used the power of the employer. Even when the employer's policy, which the woman knew about, specifically prohibits this. How, how could you possibly say that the employer was, was changing her terms and conditions of employment? The, the, the supervisor was violating an employer policy that she knew about. Just as when a supervisor fires someone or demotes someone? Yes, but in, but in, but in that instance, the, the company is acting. The company has acted. So it is within the scope of employment. But if it's just a threat, there's no action within the scope of employment for agency principles. Justice Kennedy, there is the power. Now, to now, there, there, but, and and we'll, we'll leave aside hostile environment and, and, right. and repeated uh, acts and pervasive uh, discrimination and so forth. The power to fire or to uh, hire, to promote or demote includes the power to state what the conditions are for doing that, to hold out threats and promises. In fact, that's the way that power is most commonly and effectively and predictably used in the management uh, of a company. Well, you can say that, but it's not true. In fact, that power does not reside in that officer. It has explicitly been taken away from him by the company. What more can the company do? Than to, you know, than to make that the company policy. No, the company has given him the power to hire and fire, but not to do it for wrongful reasons. And just so, the company has given him the power to hold out the prospect of hiring and firing, promoting and demoting, well, but, that's, but that's, not to do it... But, but that's the difference. Suppose you have a model employer uh, with, with, with policies, with grievance procedures, and so forth. Then you have a threat that is not carried out. Under agency principles, there's, the scope of employment doesn't come into play because nothing has happened other than in, in, in environment, which we can take care of under a different analysis. No, a great deal has happened. The employee has now been told that her work assignment and the conditions of her work are different and the terms on which she can get a promotion are different. But, but that's, never, that's never, never carried out. And she knows that's not true. Yeah. Well, she doesn't know it's not true. She knows that the company has stated that it's against company policy. That's well, not and she also learns that it's not carried out because she, she doesn't acquiesce and nothing happens. If there are no damages, then that will be a matter for damages. In this well, but case... There, 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 uh, my, my sense of the thing, if, if, if that is true, is that there simply isn't any liability. Well... Suppose the company fires somebody and she complains and she immediately is reinstated. There will still be a violation. Sure. There, will, there will be minor damages. And suppose they don't discharge the person. He says, I'll discharge you. Are you discharged? No, I mean, you're not. Go collect unemployment insurance. I don't think they'll give it to you. No, you're not discharged. Right? And this doesn't penalize an attempt to discharge. No, it doesn't. All right, so it, it, it says you can't discharge, you can't hire, you can't uh, discriminate on terms of employment. So why, if in fact you don't discharge the person, but say you're going to, but you don't, if that doesn't violate the statute, why would it violate it to say I'm not going to give you a promotion? Well, this, you do. This isn't just I'm not going to give you a promotion. If it were just I'm not going to give you a promotion. Suppose it is I'm going to make you work in Timbuktu, or I'm going to make you uh, uh, do some other thing you're terrible. No, what, you don't. what distinguishes this is the, the coercive effect it has right now. I'm not going to give you a promotion because you're a woman, I would say, is... Um, is, is not a um, is but not it has, now it has, changing it the has a bad effect if they do something bad she's hurt 
Right. You're saying the simple statement of saying it. Uh, so if you say something that never happens uh, because the person is a woman and it doesn't create a hostile environment, it still is actionable? No, not if they say because she's a woman, because that isn't attempting to coerce her to do anything. There's nothing really she can do to stop being a woman. It's when the statement is, I won't promote you unless you do something. Ms. Ms. Underwood, supposing this supervisor had two employees, one a man and one a woman, and he says to the man, I can make your life a lot easier here if you let me, you, you, let me use your beach place every weekend. And he says to the woman what was said here. Now, is a case of, of discrimination on the basis of sex made out there? Well, if it's on the basis of using your beach place, then it's not on the basis of sex. Uh, well, but he's, he's, he's asking favors from both males and females. Oh, I see. Um, well, I think that if he's asking female, favors from females on the basis of sex, then he is discriminating on the basis of sex against them. And he may also be engaging in other improper conduct with respect to other people. But I think the... the I see. So, so your answer might be different if he hadn't asked the male employee to uh, lend him his beach place, but rather made a sexual overture to the male employee. Then he would have been making sexual overtures indiscriminately, and there would have been no sexual discrimination well, for that, either party. That's, that, that's that, the that. hardest case for the yeah. sex discrimination yeah, it is. Pro proposition. It's but, an impossible case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Underwood. But, but, yes. No, finish, I, I thought you were finished. Go ahead. No, I, want, I wanted in response to some of those questions to suggest that, for instance, if an employer said to the women employees or to the black employees that you have to work twice as hard as the men do, in order to keep your job or to get a promotion. You have to do twice as much work or you have to work twice as fast or you have to do the, the um, you have to, in addition to doing all the other aspects. And, and, then the next, and the next day, a new supervisor comes in and says, we're really sorry about that, that's wrong. Was there a violation? They worked for one hour under the, under the employee who behaved wrongfully. There's a violation with de minimis consequences. You can always produce a trivial version of a violation. There was a violation. There have been cases in the lower courts where there was a remand to the district court for a factual inquiry to determine whether what happened was so trivial, so de minimis as is, not to... Is there any case in any area of the law? I'll focus on the word discharge because it clarifies it conceptually. I want to take out of your thought the problem of the bad environment. So we're not talking about a bad environment at all. Is there any case in labor law, uh, law of contract? You know, there, there's lots and lots of law where it's uh, unlawful civilly to discharge someone. And is there any instance where a person could recover where he wasn't discharged? It's somebody who said, I will discharge you, but he didn't. I, I, I not, not if the only uh, it is not the case that to that a discharge is equivalent to a promise to discharge. No. But Title VII prohibits more than discharges. Is it's, there any case then under Title VII? Well, but it's, you see, it's in, it's it's lined up certain things: hiring, discharge, and discriminating in terms or conditions of employment. So the question would be the same for each. That is, where there was no discharge, where there was no hiring where there was no discrimination in terms or conditions of employment, but simply a threat to make to do those things that was not carried out. Now, is there any precedent that would make the threat in any of those areas equivalent to the reality? Well, 
I would describe the threat, if, if you describe the threat as altering her job responsibilities, altering what she has been told she must do to get a promotion, then the answer is yes. But can we tell from just the first threat? This is the problem, Ms. Underwood, that I had understanding the government's position. There could be a threat, and the company could have a very strong policy. So you're really looking at it as an observer. You can't tell whether it would be reasonable for the worker to believe that the threat is anything more than a, a slight of the kind that is we, we, we all have to accept. So I can understand a series of threats as making for a hostile environment, but I don't understand just a single threat, and you seem to say a single threat, whether carried out or not, it, it qualifies for liability. A genuine, credible threat, which could be communicated, depending on the circumstances of the particular case, by one serious, credible statement by somebody who is known, for instance, to have carried out such threats in the past, notwithstanding the wonderful policy. But suppose all you have is this, you have this uh, vice president who is a pest, and you have a strong policy, and you have only those two things. How do you, how do you know uh, when he makes his first threat? Well, I think you have an issue of fact about whether a genuine, credible threat sufficient to support liability has been made. I think that on this record, more was alleged than one statement, and some, enough was alleged to resist summary judgment. What we have in this case, after all, is the initial statement, I can make life difficult for you, then I'm reluctant to promote you, then after she's promoted, I won't give you permission to do the, the job that you need to do for your customer unless you comply with my sexual demands. In each case, a coercive statement is made. Why does the threat, why does the threat make a difference? In, in the example you gave earlier about racial, racial uh, discrimination in, in employment, why, why is it any worse? Why does it affect the working conditions any more if the, if the uh, officer of the company says, because you're black, I'm going to make you work, uh, unless you work twice as hard? Unless you black employees work twice as hard, you're going to be fired. Why is that any worse than, than the officer who says, because you're black employees, I'm going to give you twice as much work? Now, there, there, there's, there, I, I, there's no quid pro quo in the latter case. No, I think they're the they're same. They're not saying, unless you do this, I'll do that. They're saying, they are, in each case, imposing a new term or condition on employment by reason of race in, in the hypotheticals right. that you follow. So the threat makes no difference. No, the threat... The threat can be the mechanism by which the new condition is imposed. And in this case, and in other sexual harassment cases, it sometimes is. But no, it's not the only way a new term or condition can be imposed on someone's employment. What but do you're you saying say it's a term or condition even if the person is bluffing all the way through. You're saying it's still a term or condition. I'm saying it's Either a term or condition. Even, if, even if, the, if the supervisor says, you're going to have to work twice as hard because you're a woman, and she doesn't work twice as hard, nothing happens. He was bluffing all along. That's still a, a violation as soon as he said it. So if he says it in a, in a sufficiently credible manner so that she now and everyone in, and other people in the workplace to whom it's said, anybody to whom it's said, understands that to be a new term of employment. And how under do we judge that just on the basis of the threat alone? I mean, we, let me ask you how you factor in the existence of a policy uh, 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 that this kind of thing shouldn't happen, and this is how you complain when it does. Well, in general, it seems to me a good complaint procedure will serve many functions. 
One is that it will prevent some violations. Another is that prompt reporting will tend to corroborate the plaintiff, and failure to use it will tend to raise questions about her credibility. But, but strict liability, which is what you're arguing for, uh, will not encourage that. Strict liability for hostile working environment, say, or for quid pro quo, say, if we were going to make a distinction, uh, does, does, does not encourage use of grievance procedure. It encourages laying back and filing a lawsuit. Well, I don't... Uh, it's not so clear that that's so, because one consequence of laying back and filing a lawsuit is to minimize, to reduce the credibility of the plaintiff who says that something happened but never complained to anybody about it. It, it certainly will go to damages, won't it? It would go to... Absolutely. Right. Let, let, me, let me ask you this question, which, which I think is behind some of the things that are bothering us. Take an easy case in which there's a company policy, but there have been 25 threats from the, from the particular supervisor, and... Uh, he has done everything that, that he could reasonably do to make it clear that he's going to follow through on the threat, but the moment for doing so has not yet occurred. The, the, the next job evaluation has not come up yet. The reason, if I understand your argument, that those threats, repeatedly, etc., change the terms and conditions of employment is the same reason that we say other actions, perhaps even of co-employees, create hostile environments. It does create a hostile environment, and the hostility is, in fact, a change of condition. Is that your argument? Well, it is similar to hostile environment created by co-workers in the way that you suggest. The difference is that when hostile environment is created by co-workers, there is an issue about whether the company is properly responsible. Okay, but leave, us, leave aside the question of what the standard of imputed liability is going to be. Uh, just go to the question of violation. And I take it on the question of violation, the two, the two instances are identical on your analysis. There are evidentiary differences, but conceptually they're identical. Is that correct? The harm, uh, yes, the harm that's caused uh, is caused in the same way. I, I see that my... Thank you, Ms. Underwood. The, ca uh, the case is submitted.